Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church of Thibodeau and Homa, Louisiana. Through our preaching series, we pray that you would hear the gospel proclaimed. By visiting either one of our congregations, we hope you feel the love of Christ and can worship with us. So join us as we dive into today's sermon. opportunity to come to you in worship, to come to you in prayer, to come to you seeking your will, prayerful and by the Spirit, but acknowledging, Lord, the best way to know your will is through your word. So bless your word as it is read and proclaimed this morning. Bless your church as it hears, Lord, that we might do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we're following up a sermon on prayer with a sermon on belief, how belief and prayer are connected. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to do a little mini-series on some doctrines of the church. I haven't fully fleshed out all the doctrines I want to cover. They're not maybe some of the ones you would normally think of. So if you have a doctrine that you're curious about, you might um, drop me a note and I'll consider it. Um, for instance, um, the doctrine of common grace by which God extends His grace to the entire world. I think it's a good doctrine to cover. Um, the doctrine of God's aseity. Um, I just like to say that because you don't know it. Uh, but God's aseity is God's independence, His freedom from need. And um, it's a critical doctrine, the one that we don't know and we should. And it really teaches us a great deal about God. And so those are just a couple of them that I thought of this week that I would like to cover. Now I'll get into those, but today I want to talk about faith, I want to talk about the truth. To do that, I want to talk some more about prayer, I want to talk about the word amen, which I know I've covered with you all before, so some of this will be review, certainly, but I think it'll be fruitful by God's grace and spirit in our lives. And so, we want to talk about, last week um, we, we talked about prayer, so I want to begin this week with the ending of a prayer, the word amen. Uh, and I, again, I've covered this before, but it's important that we understand this word. It's a declaration. Um, it's a declaration so common in our culture that if we were walking down the street and somebody said, um, the Tigers are the best football team in the country, you might hear someone say, amen. Now, I could use that illustration all three ways this morning, but in this particular case, it's that's the truth. I agree with that. Now, truth is not always factual, right? We believe it. We, we know that the Tigers are a great football team, and because we're from Louisiana, they're the best team. It's true. It's not a fact, but it's true. Now, next year they might be. Brian Kelly could be the, the magic sauce that we've been needing. Who knows, right? We use it at the end of prayers. We'll, we'll say at the end of a prayer, um, amen, and, and what we're saying is not it's over. I think... Probably as kids, if we just listened to the use of the word amen, we would think it means the end. That's not at all what the word amen means. It, it means, in fact, in that context, let it be so. Let it be so. It's, it's really a complicated 
uh, word, amen, it, it travels through multiple languages. It comes from Hebrew. It's used the same in Greek and English. We all say the same thing. In India, they say amen. If you go to Saudi Arabia, they probably say amen, although they will say it with a different accent. We, we use this word across languages to mean that's the truth. Let it be so. I hope it'll be so. But also in the Hebrew, it has this context of something in the future that's already done in the past. It's, we don't have a tense exactly like this in English. So that's another way we use it. We hope this will happen. We desire it to happen. We have a belief that it will happen. We use it at the end of our creeds. We use it when we're confessing our faith. At the end of those, sometimes we'll say amen. And at those times, we're not saying, gee, I hope this will come true. We're not saying it's kind of the truth, like the Tigers are the best team in the country, even though we might believe that. We know it's not always a fact, but it's actually certain sometimes when we use the word amen. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we are saying something that is certain. These are settled issues. This isn't a hope. This isn't a vague truth. It isn't a story that conveys truth. It is certainty. So when we see that the Greek word amen is the same throughout the Old Testament as well, but in the New Testament, that word is used 103 times. You begin to get an idea that it's an important word. It, it's a word that we should understand. And so Jesus uses the phrase, um, this particular phrase that we're going to be approaching over and over again, and it's a different version because it says amen, amen. And we've talked about this before. In the Hebrew language, there's not an exclamation point. And so when they want to exclaim something, they say it twice. Sometimes they do entire sentences twice. And that's their way of saying that's critically important. Pay attention to this. And so Jesus, throughout his ministry, says amen, amen. And you'll see it translated, uh, I jokingly talked about the King James this morning, because when you use that, you mean business, right? When, when pastors quote the King James, they're trying to really get your attention. So if I really wanted you to sit up, I would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Half of us don't even know what verily means, right? Amen, amen is what it means. You've heard it translated, truly, truly, I say to you. That's a literal translation. You may have heard it translated for truly, I say to you. Other versions of the Bible will say assuredly. That's a good way of putting it. Assuredly, I say to you. Or, I tell you the truth. It's important to think of that when we consider the fact that Jesus is referred to as the Amen in Revelation 3.14. Not just any old Amen, just... Not just any run-of-the-mill truth. He is the amen. He is the hope that we seek. He is the truth by which we live. He is a fact in which we desire to see the future come to fruition. It says of himself, I am the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says as well. And so it becomes intriguing for us to think about why at times the truth himself would be so moved in the course of conversation because we believe that everything that Jesus says is truth, right? Amen? And so he would at times decide to say, I tell you the truth. 
we joke about that. When somebody says, I promise, you're like, well, the rest of the time you're not promising, right? Let me be honest with you. My wife wants to get into sermon this morning. <laughs> Jesus did that too. Isn't that interesting? He is the truth. Yet he says, amen, amen. Verily, verily, truly, truly, assuredly, I say unto you, listen, is what he's saying. Pay attention. Might be a reasonable way to put it is, this is certain. What I'm about to say to you is certain. And so we need to realize that when Jesus, the truth, speaks all truth, and among all the truth that he's saying, he will say before a sentence, this is certain. We must understand that what he's saying is very important. He's calling our attention to it, right? It's just like I do. I know y'all are not Baptists. Pastor Bill's got a little Baptist in him, so I like my congregation to say amen. So you're Presbyterian. I know if I ask you, you have to do it. And, and so I say, amen? Amen. amen. No, you weren't obstinate. I thought you might hold back on me because I asked for it and told you what I was up to. I do that for two reasons. One, you might be falling asleep. But really what I'm trying to say is this point I just made, you might not have caught it. That was really important. Julia says I also end a lot of my jokes with amen, but can't help you there. Maybe I'm just trying to make sure you pay attention to my jokes. But as we kick off the new year, I want us to think about this carefully. And I want to think about it in context of two stories. First one from Matthew 8, 5 through 12. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west, and I will take their places at and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this encounter, we, we encounter this centurion, and he's pretty compelling as a character. You can learn a lot just thinking about the centurion himself. One, he is a centurion. That means he's a leader of at least 100 men. Sometimes more, but at least 100. And he's earned enough um, glory and more capability is proven to such a point that he actually recruits those 100 and they want to join him. That's how the legions were originally formed. It's kind of this voluntary gathering of the men to the centurions. The centurions gathered into legions. He's a military leader. Number two, he's probably not Jewish. Number three, not only is he not Jewish, he's probably and is an oppressor. He is there to rule over the Jews. The people of Judah are under his heel. Not only is he an oppressor and a leader of the military force that carries out that oppression, 
but he's not a native. Let all that settle in as we think about this story. He comes then to Jesus, a rabbi, a local rabbi, a, a man known somewhat locally, but not on the global scene, certainly, a man who is arising to the attention of the local religious leadership. And here he's caught the attention of the centurion. The centurion's a leader. He understands authority. We are explained that. He comes to Jesus, and he understands that Jesus can deliver something he cannot. You see, the centurion, his job is in part to deliver death. But he cannot deliver life. And so when he wants life, he goes to Jesus and he submits himself to Jesus' authority in that area. And as we look at this story, we learn more about the centurion, that he has a lack of pride. He's a humble man. He comes and he acknowledges that he has no claim upon Jesus. He should not be able to make any demand of him. In fact, he takes it a step further and says, I am not worthy to have you come to my house. That's an interesting perspective for a man who is the leader of a hundred soldiers who are in the act of oppressing the people of Israel, right? He's not worthy. Not worthy to have Jesus in his home or acting in his life. Within that unworthiness, however, we encounter something interesting. He has a willingness to ask for help. Not only does he have a willingness to ask for help, but he comes out and he asks for help, and he acknowledges that Jesus has the power that he does not have to act in this situation. And so we see a theological integrity because he understands the mercy of God. See, God's got this theory. God is not held by our needs. God does not have a need. We say that all the time. God needed that person, so he healed him. God doesn't need anything. God is self-fulfilled within himself, yet condescends to help us. That's amazing. And so he understands this idea that even though he's not worthy, that he could go to God, he could ask God through Jesus to act sovereignly in this situation and heal his servant. And because he had faith to believe in this, he's able to experience Christ as a world changer in his life. Now, I want to be careful. Jesus is a world changer, whether you experience it in your life or not. Amen? And so he should know that as well. But because of the belief of the centurion, his willingness to humble himself and approach Jesus in this manner, he has an encounter with God as a world changer by his faithful choice. Matthew 8, 13, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. And so as we look at this word, Amen, and how Jesus uses it to point to the truth, he also uses it to point to the truth about the church. Um, Jesus, Julius said there was an issue with my second um, text reference. I might have um, done something in transferring it, but I have it as John 14, 12. Um, I, I have it listed differently. I made a typo. Um, John 14, 12. And so um, hopefully you can find it correctly. It's in the Bible, I promise you. Um, I tell you the truth. 
Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know of any Christian who's read that passage carefully without a bit of confusion, possibly even a little bit of trepidation, and maybe conviction. How can any of us do more than Jesus? Might be a little undercurrent of, I certainly have never done anything more than Jesus. Right? It's a, it's a troubling text if you read it. I want to try and unpack that for us a little bit this morning. I want to take off a little bit of the heat, but I want to leave a little bit on, of, of our uh, attention on the fire as well. So, I tell you the truth. No one of us, certainly no one in this room, no offense, has done more than what Jesus has done. So take a little bit of comfort in that. But Jesus also says of this, I tell you the truth. So when the truth tells you this is the truth, you need to pay attention. You can't just push it aside with the awareness that, well, we don't know of anybody who's done this. We can't just flinch away. What does it mean that we will do more than Jesus? See how we've changed the question? And I want to mark that point because that's how we need to be approaching Scripture. It is not... How can any of us do more than Jesus? Which is a challenge to the veracity of Scripture if it's worded that way. Rather, what does it mean that we will do more than Jesus? In other words, I'm encountering the truth. This word is the truth. And you see this too much in the world today. I'm really off my notes right now, but I think it's important. Amen? Is that uh, people say, well, I just can't believe that. Well, if you're saying that about God's Word, you're in the danger zone. And so what you need to do is come back with a better question. And in this case, what does it mean that we will do or He will do more than Jesus? Now, there's an obvious answer. There's one that is true. It has a limit to itself. But we collectively have done, we the church, have in fact done more than Jesus did. I want to be careful. Hang with me a minute. You see, Jesus came to Israel and he taught and he healed thousands. The church has taught and healed millions. Billions are engaged in ministry in the church today. Billions of people doing good works every day. Billions of people praying. Billions of people making ethical decisions about their daily life and how that impacts the world globally. Billions of people setting aside time to honor and worship God. To love one another, to love their neighbor as themselves, to love God above all. And that has changed the world dramatically. And anyone who says the church has not changed the world, that Christianity is not a benefit to the world, is frankly intentionally blind. They're intentionally blind. Now there's a specifier here. He will do greater than these, it says. There are some things that we can do that are more. Just raw numbers, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus' active ministry as a rabbi on earth was roughly three years. The apostles, many lived more than three years. John lived many decades after he entered into the ministry as, as an apostle. If a Christian lives a long life of faithfulness, they will see the blind see. That's an awkward statement, but you get my point. They will experience people being healed, healed of sickness. They will see all sorts of miracles. And again, collectively, we have. The apostles lived collectively as a group for years after Jesus' death. And they, in fact, did these things. Read the book of Acts. They did amazing things. They did them for years and decades afterwards. Now, even then, so I hope I've resolved some of the question, but even then a thinking person would say, wait a second, Pastor Bill, Jesus created the world. In the first chapter of the book of John, he is the word. The word was there at the beginning. The world is created through Jesus. Certainly the apostles have not created any planets. We have not done as much as Jesus. In context, Jesus is not known at this point in the story as the incarnate Word of God. This is knowledge that comes later in the story. The, the Gospel of John is brought together after Jesus has died. And so people do not know that he is the creator of the world and they, he has not died on the cross yet and saved all of us from our sins. So those two acts, if you will, are not on the table discussion in this and so what he could be saying and translated is what you have observed about me may be outdone by those who follow that makes sense you need to read the text how can that be true what is the truth sometimes we put the Bible through questions that are not fair or accurate and so if you read the book of Acts you'll find the apostles did these things amazing things they rose people from the dead they healed the sick they preached to conversion thousands and thousands of people at a time. There was a great response to the ministry of the apostles. And again, today as the church, we represent the ongoing march of the kingdom of God to do good in the world. Even today, these two congregations in a small part are working among a bigger, larger context to do kingdom work even as we sent two folks out of worship this morning to go help work on a house so that someone could have the opportunity someday to move back into their home. We're doing greater things. We're doing the work of God. We're doing things bigger than ourselves by coming together in the kingdom. John 14, 15 through 16, if you love me, you will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If we love him, we will do what he commands. We will love one another. We will act out the faith through the power of the Spirit and the unity of the Spirit. We can globally as a church do greater things than we have ever seen before. And that's what we're doing right now, right here. We're helping people get back in their homes. We're assisting people with catastrophic struggles that are above their, their normal um, ability to handle. Churches from all over the country are participating through these two churches in the ministry to the local area. And it goes on and talks about our need to do this work. It says, if we ask for anything, we will receive it. 
So we need to ask again, is that literally true? Is that meant to be interpreted literally? Only to a point. If you ask for anything that is consistent with who God is, then you may experience God's acts and power in your life. We talked about this last week. There's reasons why God doesn't answer our prayers. He answers them in his own time, we talked about. He answers when we are confessed. In other words, if we're in obstinate sin, God may not answer our prayers. When we are half-hearted, God may not answer our prayers. There is a lack of self-centeredness then God may answer our prayers. And these things are true still. And so we look at this passage again, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. And so there's a progression here of asking in his name according to who he is. In other words, by the nature of God, we can't ask God to do evil. We can't ask God to do things that are counter to his will, to his independence as God but it should also bring glory to the Father. If it will bring glory to the Father, then it will be done in His time. All of this is dependent upon our living out the calling to be the church, to constantly be submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So it's a new year. It's 2022. Every new year I try and exhort us and remind us and call us into faithfulness. The last few years it's been a challenge, to say the very least, um, between the pandemic and between Ida and, and just all the other things that are going on in our culture. It's easy to say, this is just too much. It's just too hard. And I just want to exhort us that the Lord's in control. That God is with His church. And that we're in the process of living a new year, a new day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is where he wants us to be. This is where he's guiding us through because he's taking us somewhere else. This is not an ending, but a beginning. And I think as we come to him each day, seeking him out, trying to honor him and glorify him, and praying for his will in our lives, that we do have a power to change the world. So I want us to feel a sense of contentment in who we are in Christ, but I don't want us to be satisfied. Does that make sense? I want us to have a sense of urgency about the future, and I want to remind us. Julie and I have been out, you know, we go and visit some other churches, and we, we, we look at the landscape of, of the worship community around us, and we are uniquely positioned as grace-filled, grace-centered congregations in this community. We, we are people who come in with a Reformed tradition and a sense of grace that is not being proclaimed in our community. It just isn't. We, we have seen the increase of Reformed teaching, but brothers and sisters, there's not the grace-focused, doctrines of grace-focused teaching that is needed in a works-righteousness community. You should be able, in your conversations with your neighbors and friends, to say to them honestly and openly, you know, I hear what you're saying. What I just heard sounded like you're trying to earn God's salvation. And I would love for you to come to our church and hear 
how you receive God's grace freely. Because you're going about it the wrong way. And you say that in a way that's not hostile at all, but I love you too much to let you struggle this hard. Christianity is not supposed to be awful. It's supposed to be wonderful. It's supposed to be affirming and empowering and equipping. It's challenging. Life is hard. Life is full of struggles. But our faith, our faith is a gift gift from God. And so we need to exist, brothers and sisters. And we need to have confidence to share what has been given to us. To share the gospel as we have received it freely, graced it. Recognize what we've talked about the last two weeks, that we can pray, and our prayers, by God's grace, change the world. Change the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your many gifts this day, your grace in our lives. We pray that you would speak to us by this, this word, that you would guide us into our lives and the world. Lord, that we never lose sight of our calling to be missionaries of your grace, to let others know the good news that you can't add anything to the work of Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. Praise be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord, as we come before you this day, we pray humbly. Come and heal us. Come and strengthen us. Come and equip us for your glory that we might serve you in this world. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ, saying together, Amen. The essential number six from the EPC, Essentials, Jesus Christ will come again to the earth personally, visibly, and bodily to judge the living and the dead and to consummate history in the eternal plan of God. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray indeed that you would come into our hearts. Remind us by your spirit that we are children of God, that the Father has loved us, that the Son has died for us, that we are not alone. The Spirit dwells in us. Praise be to God. God bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's sermon. If you want to learn more about our churches, please check out our websites. For the Thibodeau location, www.fpct.net. And for our HOMA location, www.homafirst.church. That is homafirst.church. Again, thank you for tuning in, and may God bless and enrich your day. See you next Sunday.